I'd say that ecosystems need to be understood as common. They are processes which are not governed by anyone, which are distributed and shared, which are about maintaining or enlarging the fecundity of the whole. The, the players in them are at the same time the material of the commons. It's embodied and this embodied life process is profoundly relational. This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. My guest today is Andreas Weber, a friend, a biologist, and an eco-philosopher. When I met Andreas about 10 years ago, I was amazed at his audacity in challenging many of the orthodoxies of neo-Darwinism. Only later did I realize how much his thinking about living organisms has to say about the commons. Andreas proposes that science study a very radical, yet mostly unexplained phenomena, aliveness, he rejects the neo-Darwinian account of life as treating living systems as sophisticated machines, each relentlessly competing with maximum efficiency in a laissez-faire market known as nature. But drawing upon a rich body of empirical science, Weber outlines a different story of evolution and biology, one in which living organisms are inherently expressive and creative in a struggle to both compete and cooperate, and even find meaning, in a sense, of the word. The heart of the evolutionary drama, Weber insists, is the quest of all living systems to express what they feel and experience, and to adapt to the world and to change it. He talks about life as relationality, aliveness, subjectivity, and wholeness as central to any healthy living system. Unfortunately, Western modern enlightenment thinking, including conventional science and capitalism, often don't get it. So this help explains why modern societies are having trouble with such things as the pandemic, climate change, and a number of other ecological issues. In a recent essay entitled Sharing Life, the Ecopolitics of Reciprocity, Andreas explains how a new animism could help reorient our perspectives in constructive ways. So welcome, Andreas. We have so much to talk about. Hi, David. Let's start with telling me about how you came to, as a scientist studying biology, came to develop a different understanding of life and how you would study it, because you've been doing this now for 20 or more years from a very, you might say, dissenting perspective from mainstream science. You probably should go back much farther into the past, into my childhood, um, when I had this intense relationship to other living beings. So I was profoundly fascinated by animals, by particular species, which were sort of my totem species, like owls. It, actually, it was owls and reptiles. Th that was always there. And when I grew older, this widened to, let's say, emotional understanding and closeness of other beings which never went away and which when I started to study biology which I did of course because of my love for other organisms there was no place for that and this was a deeply startling experience for me because I saw that although by the biologists with whom I trained profoundly loved other beings, at least most of them. But it, it wasn't built into the science. Other beings were objects, things. And I found this to be profoundly wrong. So as a young undergraduate or graduate student, how did you find your way amidst a field of study which was kind of hostile or indifferent to that sensibility that you had grown up with as a child? Yeah, that's a very good question. How did I find my way? I'm happy that I found 
some sort of way by mostly constructing it myself or as my uh, teacher, one of my teachers, Francisco Varela, called it by laying a path down uh, by walking. So I, um, I actually didn't really find my, my way out or my way through in biology. I, I needed to look at an alternative philosophical thinking about life. And I then discovered the Jewish, German and later American philosopher Hans Jonas, who in a groundbreaking way started to think about organisms in terms of subjects and not objects. And that was actually the door. And I remember the precise moment when I read a chapter in his book in university. So I, I also had philosophy courses because I was searching the way out of this biological trap. And I remember the moment when I understood that that was the door to walk through. That was a moment of uh, profound awe and bliss, actually. And I'm, I'm following the track, this track since that moment. Which book would that be by Jonas? This book doesn't exist in English translation, I think, but it's a very much related book is The Phenomenon of Life, which came out in 66. Enlarging this thinking, I then came upon um, the work of Francisco Varela and uh, Humberto Maturana, the Chilean theoretical biologists, and found a host of similarities in their thinking, and particularly in the thinking of Varela, who then was in Paris. I went there and I asked him if I could train with him in his lab and presented him the view of Jonas, and he didn't really know this. So then I kind of made the connection, and then I worked for some time with, together with him and did my PhD. I was in this situation to do, let's say, hands-on cognitive biological research on this idea of living beings being subjects rather than objects and being subjects for being in relationship with other subjects. So in a sense, you threaded the needle by bringing practical biology in with philosophy, which was sort of stretching the boundaries of the disciplinary thinking itself. Yeah, I mean, it both existed in ways. I, I just followed, in, let's say, my individual path of taking a certain philosophical viewpoint to a certain way of in interpreting biological findings, I'd say. So, so you could call it phenomenological biology, or you can call it biosemiotic, which does exist as a biological discipline, as a, as a discipline of philosophy of biology. And that means, uh, let us take the life world as a, a realm in which not only causality, without any concern for anybody is the, the most important plane, the most important ground, but meaning. So the life is full of meaning, and this holds also for other organisms. And there we are again. Let me ask you in your own words to give a 100 or 200 word summary of this alternative approach, which I assume you can't get too much traction on in mainstream academia. Give me your summary of your approach to biology. First, we have to understand that life is a profoundly subjective phenomenon so it's not 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 something which is only happening on bodies which we can understand according to mechanical law or cybernetical um, observations but they, these bodies are always centers of experience like we know from our own body so we, we are a subject in a body uh, to my view this holds for all beings so the biosphere is full of subjective experience. That's one point. You see this really changes the picture because at the moment humans are treating the remainder of life as things and they learned we learned that from uh, natural science from biology. This is the 
This has been the working hypothesis for several hundred years. I say that if you, if you deeply look into how an organism builds itself up and constructs itself, because this is a very active process and it's a process which is following the goal to exist, let's call it like this, the, the desire to be, to my eyes, it's um, inevitable to understand that living beings are subjects and they experience their world according to what it means to them. You could even nearly say in cultural terms, because culture is the realm of meaning. So you see, this is a totally different world then, when we not just confront other beings as pure matter or pure stuff. Like I'm, I'm looking out of the window right now in the, in the Berlin dusk and I see the trees. So it's, it's totally different if I approach these as fellow subjects with whom I share an existence, or if I approach them as a sort of natural furniture, which I can dispose of, which I can just decide what, what to do with. And I'd, I'd say that's the, the, the nucleus, that's the center in this. And there's a second aspect coming to it, or from that, which is that if uh, other organisms are subjects, we have a natural ability to communicate with them, or to be with them, or to get into relation with them, because subjects somehow know or intuit what other subjects need and what they're up to. And if you look at how humans instinctively treat other beings, we, we are doing this all the way. So children, when they're born and when they grow up, they have this, this way of uh, relating to other beings as uh, fellow subjects and not as things. You need to teach them that they are only objects in order to, to educate them towards that attitude. But naturally, we are we're in, a, in a world of other subjects. I would imagine a lot of ordinary people would say you're being fanciful or romantic. Absolutely, sure, yeah. Or indeed not a scientist because you're not doing empirical study of replicable things. It's all subjective and that's a pretty squishy phenomena. What's, what's your response to those type of criticisms? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I know it very well, so in a way it's not so much upsetting me as, as this is a sort of instinctive way of dismissing fundamental critiques of problematic points of our civilizational views of reality. Then you're very quick at saying this is not science or this is romantic they're kind of like wholesale refusals of somebody's position or you could also say oh that's so anthropocentric and then you've killed somebody so i i kind of like just shrug it off in a way but i i um, i wouldn't agree with you that i i don't have arguments to the contrary i'd even say that that what i do is pretty much built on observation it's very empirical because i am observing this as a subjective experiencing body among other subjective experiencing bodies. So that's, that's pretty empirical. And there's a, there's a whole theory behind it. And I, I've written books about that whole theory. You can very well argue for the biological subjectivity, only that it runs counter to the paradigms which prevail at the moment. Um, the bedrock of these paradigms is that the world consists of mere objects and humans are the only agents in this world of mere objects. That's wrong. And we know um, more and more uh, that this is not, not a realistic attitude. And we, we have um, a lot of other developments in other branches of uh, science and humanities, which uh, have started to dissolve this objectivist paradigm. Just think of, how, how is it called, the, the new anthropology or the work of Karen Barad, who, who has this beautiful term that 
also matter matters because matter has also agency. So there's a lot of movement in this. It's actually turning over. So we, we will have a world view in which, which is about uh, relationships between agents and not about uh, humans changing formations of matter soon. It seems such a formidable task, however, because in a sense, you're taking on centuries of enlightenment thinking, which has the separation of body and mind and the separations of humans from nature, and that you're dealing with some deep ontological categories of yes. truth that people believe. In some ways, how do you begin to engage in a conversation about that when we're talking about the operating system for the human mind and, and body? as opposed to an established field of inquiry. No, that's true. So I, I didn't want to say that um, everything is, is already in place and it's easy. It's true that the idea to put subjective experience back where, where it actually resists runs counter to, as you say, centuries of cultural development. And it also runs counter to the organization of our culture itself, because this is, this is um, designed after the idea that the only meaningful agents are humans, and they simply have to put things at places in the most efficient way. And, and don't forget that we, we, I mean, you don't, I know you don't forget it, but just, just to come to this point is that and when you talk about the last couple of centuries, then these are the last couple of centuries of, of capitalism, of neoliberalist uh, philosophy, which is actually the most raw and direct way of saying that this world is made of objects which need to be moved, passive objects which need to be moved so that the only agents in brackets humans can be as efficient as they are able to because they need to win over other humans. So capitalism is the, the epitome of objectifying thinking, taking away from other subjects their agency, their subjectivity, and their inner experience. And um, that's a formidable task, you're right. And I, I, I'm not sure if, if time is enough to, to, to pull through and, and to, to stop capitalism de devouring the remainder of life on Earth before it, this is done. And that's, that's absolutely true. Still, I see at the moment, um, I see a lot of light coming from the direction of changing the, the, the idea that humans are the, the, the processors of, of objects. I'd say that Anthropocene thinking, which is kind of like forming itself right now, is, is really a counter a movement to this uh, neoliberalistic thinking. You've mentioned in the past that a lot of Darwinistic thinking seems to have absorbed or reflected Victorian industrial era thinking about the world in terms of nasty, competitive, laissez-faire markets. Talk a bit about how you, the linkages between capitalism and our perceptions of evolution and biology. Yeah, that's a that's that's very important. It's the right point of our discourse here to do this. We know that um, cultural studies have developed a very mature view on how social practices form scientific results. Um, so we know that there is no scientific outcome which is not in some respect formed by the society in which it has um, come about. The interesting thing is that this hasn't so much been done for some reason with the Darwinistic paradigm or the, how you could call it, the, the synthetic evolutionary theory. 
I think it's that's due to the fact that it is so, this is so prominent as the bedrock of biological thinking. So this is sort of untouchable. But if you look to when Darwin conceived of his ideas, then you see that this was the heyday of Victorian early capitalism. And it was also the time um, in which it was thought, and Thomas Robert Malthus put it into his uh, works, that there are always too many human, let's say, uh, it, the population is always growing too much so that there is a, is a sort of selection and there's uh, eternal competition and the most weak will necessarily die, etc. This is all known. What is maybe not that much known is that Darwin was not able to find a mechanism for the gradual change of life forms into new species until he had read Malthus until he had read Economy of Those Times. And then he put this mechanism um, that there is always too many individuals and selection takes place and it selects the most adapted, the fittest. He put it into his biological theory. And from this came the, this fundamental idea perfusing all layers of our society that it is about competition, it is about being efficient, and that every trait in lived reality is somehow due to being a winner in this competition. But you can easily see it's a fashion of Victorian thinking built into a biological theory. One could say that the quest to develop a new biological theory today might be reflecting our own social circumstances of trying to uh, develop this subjectivity and relationality with so-called nature. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is that's what is always happening. You can never detach the, the cultural situation from what you think about the, let's say, the, the whole picture. It needs to be said also, because I very much stress this, this break with Darwinian thinking, it needs to be said that actual evolutionary theory in biology has not so much in common anymore with that crude application of the selection principle which Darwin needed to do in his, in his first work and which particularly his followers then took from him. If you look at, at current biology, you'll immediately get that it's, it's not about um, winners and losers. It's always about a profoundly entangled meshwork of different subjects somehow inevitably being related to one another. And it's, it's not that picture anymore, actually. We've, we've overcome that, but in the mainstream view of life, it's still very much there in the popular science magazine view or, or wherever you look at, if you want to understand it quickly, it's still very much there. And that's, uh, that's the wrong way. It seems that all of this has some deep implications for how we see the world to the extent that your approach tries to recover meaning, aesthetics, spirituality, morality, as one might say, evolutionary significant factors. Let's talk about your book, Enlivenment, which you said, essentially, we need to move from an enlightenment way of thinking to an enlivenment mm. way of thinking. Tell me what you mean by that and why you, how this relates to what we've just been discussing. Yeah, that's the idea that everything we've been talking about, trying to untangle it conceptually, can be brought together in the experience of being alive or in your experience of your aliveness. And this is something, aliveness, life as, as an experience and as a particular process, um, this is something which somehow has dropped out of science because it seemed too fuzzy and subjective and personal and maybe romantic. So it, it, it kind of was simply silently suppressed. 
And uh, the idea of um, calling for an enlivenment is to introduce the whole spectrum of our perceptual, cognitive, intuitive, emotional abilities as bodies with the desire to, to grow, to unfold, to connect and to be part of a fecund whole into our thinking about reality. Otherwise, we do that which biology has done for a long time and which is the danger in the whole uh, scientific worldview. We somehow turn the whole, whole reality into a, a zone of death and we, we suck life out of it. Although we are, we are full of it. We, everybody knows that every scientist is alive. I mean, this is something I, I remember very well from my undergraduate studies that we were continuously working with living beings and we, we um, dissected them at the beginning. We needed to know how they were built and whatever we made, we counted them, we, we observed them. We, we always were asked to not relate to them in any form of personal or emotional way. We were asked to uh, feign uh, that everything is, was dead and we were sort of re scientific recording machine. And you see, this is just a distortion of reality because the reality is that a living being is interested in the reality of other living beings and they meet. And that's the first plane of, let's say, biological experience. And everything else comes from that then. One reason I have found so much of your thinking compelling is because it tracks into my thinking on the commons. And you once wrote an essay in the book Patterns of Commoning about reality as a commons and how this relationality at a deep living level is, you might say, the essence of both reality and, I would argue, the commons as well. Talk a little bit about that essay and some of your thoughts about reality phenomenologically as a commons. To me, it was a real enlightening and enlivening experience to bump into uh, the commons, actually. I quickly sensed that um, as a biologist who doesn't see ecosystems from this mainstream competitive viewpoint, but from the, the viewpoint of subjects meeting other subjects, there, there were so many things in common, actually, between um, ecology and the commons. And I'd say, and this is, I think, what I wrote in this book chapter, I'd say that ecosystems need to be understood as commons. That's the, the, the takeaway. So it's there, they are processes which are not governed by anyone, um, which are distributed and shared, which are about maintaining or enlarging the fecundity of the whole. The, the players in them are at the same time the material of the commons, every organism is the common, is part of the common, is, is the common itself. It's embodied and this embodied life process is profoundly relational. So I think we can learn a, little, a lot of um, how we organize the world as a commons from how ecology functions. Only that you need to um, get away from that simplistic idea of that um, every living being is only continuously maximizing benefits to the detriment of of others that's that's too short-sighted but if you step into this other perspective then you you see that the whole living reality is organized as a commons and you see you see two other things you see that commons are alive in the sense that they are a feeling process they're an experience process they're not neutral they're not just structures which work they are structures which express and represent and experience themselves 
Um, so they are profoundly subjective. And, and therefore, in some ways, you, you can't theorize so much about it. Oh, yes. It's, it's more, uh, more akin yes. to art, or the term you use is biopoetics. Yes. So, so it taught, what, what do you mean by biopoetics? And is that simply our subjectivity expressing itself in artistic form or something like that? Yeah, thanks, Leah. You, you just described the second point I was going to um, explain. So it, you need to, to do it and you need to live it. And you need to, you cannot just talk about it objectively or, or give a seminar about it or do a workshop. You need to enact and perform commoning or you need to be alive with one another in order to understand what life means. That's, that's a profound precondition. And that's a precondition which completely changes the way we should look at solutions and at even at diagnosing problems. We can't do it from the standpoint of um, hovering over things and, and trying to depict their structures. We need to take part in them. And we need to let them speak and allow them to, to, to question us. This really changes our relationship to so-called reality, which was still this kind of backdrop, which can be described. So you, you ask, why do, do I call it biopoetics? I would even say, um, if anybody asked me, what, what is your philosophical movement about? I, I would say it's biopoetics. And I mean with that, that everything living, which is described by biology, at the same time is a process of continuously bringing forth that's poiesis in, in greek it's it's production so it's about production of more relationships but it's also about production of inner worlds of deepening experience let's say on the whole spectrum between embodied and inward experience inwardly experienced it is it is um, bringing forth uh, new realities i think that's the decisive defining criterion of uh, living beings and we need to see it from this perspective absolutely you tried to explore this, or you did explore this in your book, Matter and Desire, an Erotic Ecology, in which you make the rather bold statement that love is at the root of the workings of living phenomena and the cosmos. That seems a rather bold statement, but of course, very in line with what we've just been talking about. Talk a little bit about the idea of an erotic ecology. I, I came there not from, let's say, from the from the intuition that everything is needs to be traced back to love. So I didn't start with love and a certain preconception of it. It was more the other way around. It was more that I was following these thoughts in the vein of what we have been talking about. I was trying to understand how from the interaction of different subjects, which on one hand yearn to be autonomous and self-procreating, um, and on the other hand are, are always dependent on one another, as it is the case with life. How can good relations be organized? And I was um, realizing that in order for ecology to function, or, or in order for a commons to function, it is important that the, the agents can at the same time do what their, what their needs are. And by doing this, somehow supplying what the needs of the others call for. And then I, I had one of these moments when I realized that this is actually a definition of love as a practice. If you can realize your existence in a way that the other can also realize his or her existence or its existence, then you have a relationship to them which is based on the interest in their aliveness or the interest in, in the fecundity of your relationship. And I'd say that's a mature definition of love. 
which which I, I came to after uh, trying to understand what is going on in ecosystem. That made me very happy because on the other hand, we know that the human reaction to the presence of other beings or of, of immersion into ecosystems is very emotional and has a lot to do with the experience of closeness, intimacy, um, being held in a safe environment. So it is actually very close to the emotions which you experience if you happen to, to generate a productive practice of love. To me, it made sense, actually, that one came from the other. So in a way, you're talking about these kind of deeply intimate, inward dimensions of living systems as they engage in a symbiosis with each other as being the kind of animating force of natural systems. Well, I would say it's, I would say more. I would even say now these principles are the, the drive forces behind how uh, reality unfolds. And they are the driving forces which inevitably will, will prevail. So our choice as uh, human actors is to somehow tune culturally into the principles of, let's call it, of good reciprocity. Because that's how everything unfolds. That's my profound conviction. And we can just, we, we, we need to reflect this in our cultures. Well, this leads us right up to your most recent book, Sharing Life, The Biopolitics of Reciprocity, in which you talk about, well, some people call it the new animism, but the idea, you study a lot of indigenous cultures and how they have a very intense, deep animistic relationship with other living creatures, whether they're rivers or mountains or other animals. Tell me why you got into that topic. Is this a culmination of a lot of your thinking? And are you trying to speak to some of the, the problems of the culture today through talking about, about animism in general? I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a new guise of, of the same profound intuition, but somehow it might, be, it might make them clearer or clearer in, in a different way. Let me say two things. I came upon animism um, because I realized that animistic cultures, far from being superstitious, stupid people who uh, are in reverence of spirits living in trees, which as which they were treated for a long while due to the colonial view. Animistic cultures follow two principles. The first principle is all other beings are persons or subjects. And the other principle is the most important rule is that we need to maintain relations of reciprocity with everyone. And now I'm speaking also of the non-human persons. With everyone in our habitat or in our ecosystem. And as you can see, after um, all we have been talking about, this dovetails perfectly with my biologically derived thinking. And so I'm, I found cultures who never deviated from the um, intuition that we need to treat other beings as what they are, namely as subjects. And they build a cosmological practice on that, which is ecologically extremely sustainable, as we know, con in contrast to our own. I'm sure that we really need to profoundly look at those cultures in order to understand more about what we can change in our own culture. I'd like to expand a bit about that in terms of what have you found in those cultures and their ways of being that might be instructive for the West? And do we moderns really have a realistic chance of learning from indigenous cultures and developing, one might say, fledgling forms of, of animism? 
clearly it's not about getting back into the stone age <laughs> that would be an easy an easy critique which i can expect it's like what what you you argue for going back to the stone age okay we know this as a, as a counter argument but i'm 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 not saying this i'm i'm saying that uh, we should look conceptually on a cosmology which is about sharing our world with other persons um, in an egalitarian way and this is this is profoundly ecological because ecosystems are about sharing a world with other persons in an egalitarian way and this leads to this distribution of roles in ecosystems the food web and niches and everything which which comes from this so so i'd say that animistic cultures have developed a profoundly ecological understanding from the first person view this is just what we need so we really need to look at what they have done and what they are doing and and then we can see how to adjust behaviors and habit and cultural norms in our society i mean it doesn't it doesn't happen that mechanically it's more that inspiration then comes and change then happens i really think that there are some principles at work in those cultures which we have broken in the western cognitive empire and this is costing us our existence and this is costing the earth let's say the, the 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 life of so many species it needs to be done and there's a way forward but it doesn't mean okay now let's learn to build to construct uh, little sheds from from leaves it's not about that it's about a profound principle orientation of relationships and i mean it's also about understanding how commons work because all these societies all animistic societies are commoners they are all enacting the commons there's not one of those societies which is not commons based or commons oriented so it's because it's the same as being ecology oriented reciprocity oriented so i'd say there the richness of of structures and the last point is that we see that those people are they are also spiritually embedded in a cosmos which is about giving life and that's something which the average westerner has been searching for for hundreds of years this we are exiles from from a meaningful world and this is also something we can find there. It strikes me that there are so many rich veins to mine here in terms of dealing with the alienation of modern life, in dealing with the predation and exploitation of modern capitalism, of dealing with the narrow perspectives of contemporary science. I mean, there's just a lot of problems that people know about, but finding our way beyond it to a more integrated whole system that is, as you say, subjectively satisfying. <laughs> that's the uh, that's an area that people just don't want to go to or feel it's it requires rejecting too much. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's the the, the, the common thing. And I, I understand this because if somebody suggests that I renounce to certain commodities I love, uh, then then I intuitively say, no, 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 I want to keep this. That's clear. But we, we shouldn't start by this. That's also very technocratic. You know, that's, 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 that's the technocratic progressive left saying, okay, you see, this is the, the model of uh, how you lead your life. So do it like this. We should take the principles and we should also take, or let, let me say it in a different way. Let me, let me say, we should take the, the foundation of the principles uh, which are active in animistic cultures, which is, the foundation is, allow yourself to be a living being among other living beings. Allow yourself to have the needs and desires of a living being and to believe in the possibility, the, the certainty even, that these desires can be met by a productive and giving cosmos. I'd say that this is ruining this profound belief, this profound confidence in one's own aliveness is the 
the start of the long history of enclosure of life and colonialization of life, which is the history of the West. So there's not only structurally something helpful to find, there's also a sort of, there's a possibility to get in touch with our own ability to construct relationships built on a true reciprocity out of a, a plenty of aliveness, which we do have as humans, but which we have so much um, purged from our culture that we, we don't feel ourselves even able to get back there, uh, end up in a, in a lot of, in a host of toxic and dependent behavior because we somehow need to fill these holes. We can do this, and animistic societies show us that it's it's actually easy. Just just believe what you what you intuit, and go there and step into contact with another being. It's possible. It's doable. You feel good. It's very easy. It seems that it it brings to mind where we started this this conversation about the attitude of a child or of the best religious traditions, in which there is kind of an openness and a vulnerability to reciprocity. Yes to living systems that in some ways the answer is immediate and always here as opposed to oh my god we have to reject western civilization to go anywhere in other words in all sorts of personal incremental ways through commoning we can find a way forward and that's just going to be an unfolding and evolving yeah absolutely uh, that we don't yeah. know we don't know where it's going to go how it's going to come absolutely. out absolutely that's 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 just what i think and it's important to admit that we don't know where we will come out but we can know what feels right and what feels fair and what feels also okay for other beings. These are things we can immediately know. And the normal Western approach is to think about goals in the distance and then somehow design a way to get to these goals. And as we always know, we never, never, ever turn out at these goals. We always somewhere get out somewhere else, which is more or less related to these goals. Or we, we crash and burn in the middle of the, the way. But we should do it, as you say. We should allow one another our, our principal animistic abilities of being able to share life with other persons, human or non-human, and then build on that. And let's see where it takes us. And it doesn't mean at all to reject civilizational, how, how could we call it, standards. You don't start by this. You don't start by, okay, now you, 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 you close the tap of the gas which feeds your heater that's not the way you do it you do it you do it the other way around and then we we can see what what comes from this this is how cr creative constructive productive culture works and but i think we need we need to do this so we need to start by allowing ourselves to be fully alive which isn't an easy task as we know because this also needs means that we need to allow ourselves to be truthful to be real Everybody who thinks a little bit about this means that this will bring us to to need to confront our deepest fears. Um, but it's about this. So we, we, we should go in that direction. Arguably, that's the only way through because we've seen the profound limitations of existing methodologies, whether it's science or capitalism or technocratic uh, approaches, and that maybe we could be more optimistic that aliveness is going to manifest itself and is going to find the solutions that maybe are counterintuitive or that we don't see right now. The good thing in aliveness is it's not something we need to develop because we have it. 
other living beings also have it. So it's a, it's a set of abilities uh, which are built into our ourselves because they have served us and our ancestors for millions of years, and they have proven to be rather ecologically valid. One, one thing I wanted to add is that psychology, behavior psychology now thinks, let's say many, some of some important psychologists now think that we can understand human beings as profoundly cooperative. Because there, you know, there has this been this raging debate of humans are profoundly evil, so you need to restrain them. Because if you don't restrain them, they'll co immediately commit crimes um, in order to, to to satisfy their greed. Or the other Rousseauan proposition that humans are intrinsically good. So if you restrain them, you'll make them bad. So let them free, and then they will be so good. Both are caricatures of what we can be. Um, we are cooperative and we are in need of cooperation and we have the capacities to cooperate. And cooperate means that we, in, in a reciprocal way, contribute our individual abilities into a larger whole. We are prepared to step back because the whole is larger than our individuality, but we are also prepared to partially lead because some of our individual contributions might be very important. We should think about this idea and we, we should also know that if humans are uh, allowed to be profoundly cooperative, then they're happy. So if you really have the, the feeling that you are part of a larger thing and your cooperation is meaningful for the flourishing of this larger thing, I can predict that you will feel good. And if you, if you lose this, or if anybody loses this, he or she will start to feel depressed. We should build on this um, human ability to, to be happy through cooperation. What I say here is not very much different from when I say uh, ecosystems are structures organized according to reciprocity. It's, it's the same thing. And when I say a practice of love means that you realize yourself by allowing the other to realize herself. It's again the same thing. So it's, it's about um, organizing cooperation of different individuals in order to create a productive whole. I think that's a, that's, we, are, we are constructed in this way, but at the same time we mirror, um, let's say, the cosmic process, which always, if let loose, will go into the direction of creating mutual transformation and thereby somehow exploring the space of possibilities. Wow, that's fantastic to, to think about. It reminds me of in physics, as you know, things often enter, pressure builds up until there's a phase shift. Yes. And it could, could just be that just as water then becomes ice or gas becomes solid, that we're building or, or could build towards a phase shift in which these new possibilities can more reveal themselves more forcefully and not be seen as such a marginal phenomena, but in fact, maybe our inheritance as a species. Absolutely. When I before said that we cannot technocratically plan for goals and then see that we'll never attain these goals, that's because normally, not only in physics, but also in history, change manifests as phase shift. So this is why it's unplannable. And we can see this in the COVID-19 epidemics right now. We can see that this has just shifted some practices and values and necessities and importances in a way that nobody could have planned and nobody would have been able to pull through with planning. Not even a, a, a brutal totalitarian regime would have been able to, to install what people now are doing on a basically a voluntary base. So this is, this is, you see, history also operates with phase shifts. 
and we the, the wrong idea of let's say of, of progressive thinking was always to to think about goals okay we need to get there and then let's design a way to get there it never happens this way because the phases shift and uh, you you can't plan a phase shift it's not, not not something which you can really plan you can if you're a smart guy you can just when fa the phase shifts you can you can just secure a huge chunk of it maybe but that, that's not that's not what we're what we're thinking about so what what is important to do is to to work towards the phase which fits life wherever you can let's say in the underground or in your everyday life or wherever wherever it is about life if you're working towards being as alive as possible you prepare a phase shift favorite of life i'd say that's 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 the only way to of, of meaningful action actually well that's a wonderful way to conclude our conversation I, I want to thank you andreas for spending this time and reviewing your really quite deep thoughts about how commons and commoning and biology can and aliveness can help us get through some of these difficulties that we're encountering right now Thanks, David, for um, enticing me to, to think about these things again. Thank, thanks so much. Well, a pleasure.